For those that missed it earlier, this year's Sewn corporate sponsor, Tegas, has come up with a fun idea for Sewn attendees. They've offered to source a custom expert call for anyone in the Sewn audience, which you can do at tegas.com slash Sewn. Hopefully some of those calls will be used to investigate the ideas that have been presented so far today. We move now to an incredibly interesting interview. Stan Druckenmiller is the founder, CEO, and chairman of the Duquesne family office. He's one of the most successful and legendary investors of all time, with an incredible investing track record across decades and through a variety of market environments. He's also a student of history, and I'm sure that his ideas today will be sobering, informative, and balanced. Sam Altman said earlier that he tries not to make macro predictions, but Stan is in that business, so I expect some macro thoughts that will leave us all thinking. Stan is being interviewed by Kirill Sokoloff, the founder of 13D Research and Strategy. Kirill, too, is a student of markets and history and brings decades of perspective, making him the perfect person to steer the conversation and get into the most important topics with Stan. Gentlemen, over to you. It's always such a great pleasure to be with you. I can't think of anyone in the world I've, I've talked to than you right now. Last year, you told me you thought the U.S. recession would arrive in the last half of 23 or early 24, but you recently told me that you brought your recession forecast forward. You're hearing lots of anecdotal information from the CEOs you talk to, problems in trucking, problems in retail, obviously credit contraction issues. And you believe that the consensus of a soft landing is very unlikely. And you rate the probabilities of a hard landing as quite high. After all, how could we not have a hard landing after 11 years of the greatest monetary stimulus in US history? A 500 basis point increase in short rates over the past year. The developing real estate uh, crisis in, in commercial real estate. Regional banks have 33% of their loans in that sector and the bursting of the everything. Would you please elaborate on this? <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Always good to see you. Um, you conveniently left out uh, part of the punchline, which was when we talked, I told you that I've been doing this for 45 years. I have to make economic forecasts for a living, and this is easily the most challenging period to have a confident forecast I've had in my career. You've just articulated some of the reasons. Um, the extreme monetary policy and then the uh, abrupt change. But COVID figures kind of mess everything up, um, trying to figure out what, what the momentum um, coming out of COVID is is just that and is real or is not real or sustainable or is not sustainable. Then you got the Ukraine war, then you got the whole China reopening. So I, I wanna qualify anything I say with saying in terms of confidence, um, it's not as much as I would usually have, not that uh, economic forecasting is, is an exact science anyway, but, but we do know a few things. Um, Thanks to you, it was your recommendation. I read Edward Chancellor's The Price of Time. Um, as you know, I've been saying for years that my observation was the worst uh, economic outcomes 
tended to follow asset bubbles. I was only looking um, at the past hundred years or so. And um, Edward Chancellor's book in a, a real tour de force describes how this has been going on for over 500 years. And basically every time you've had interest rates below 2% going back 500 years, it's generally been followed um, with, with difficult economic times. So if you look at the, the current menu, um, I think it was actually just, just a little over two years ago, I went on national television and said we had monetary policy that was the most reckless and extreme relative to the economic circumstances I had ever seen. And at that time, inflation was two and a half percent. You had a booming economy, you were coming out post COVID and it was clear post vaccine that we were, we were on our way to maybe the most rapid recovery um, I had seen in my lifetime. Um, I was not surprised about a year later that inflation reached 9%. I was not surprised that SPACs went crazy, Bitcoin went crazy, Dogecoin went crazy, uh, equities went crazy. What I was surprised by was that for the next year while all that happened, um, Jerome Powell's Fed continued to have their foot on the gas. They continued to buy $120 billion a bond a month while rates were zero. Um, this obviously led to everything I just described. Then um, realizing they had probably made the biggest mistake in the history of the Fed, they slammed on the brakes. Um, they've raised rates 500 basis points in the last year. Um, we know historically two things which you've already articulated. Number one, um, the worst economic outcomes tend to follow uh, too easily engineered um, asset bubbles. And number two, big maximum in my business, don't fight the Fed. So I'm sitting here staring in the face at the biggest asset and probably the broadest asset bubble. Forget that I've ever seen that I've ever studied. It went on for 10 or 11 years. And then as the grand finale, um, the government spent $5 trillion on COVID. The Fed financed 60% of it. And as I just described, now we, now we have a big hike in interest rates. Um, it's hard to look at that constellation of factors, know that we've only had a few soft landings since 1950. All of them were, were preceded by what I would call proactive rather than reactive Fed policy and believe we're going to have a soft landing. One never knows, but if you're just looking at the odds, they're very tough. In terms of the timing, um, I have left much less certainty on that than I do on whether we're going to have a hard landing or a soft landing. The timing um, is difficult, but I will say you've already noted in, in our shop, we tend to use anecdotal information a lot. It's somewhat mixed. Um, housing, which has tended to lead historically, is actually um, fairly, fairly robust. 
um, travel, restaurants, stuff like that is fairly robust. But other stuff, um, trucking, which has been a guiding light for my firms in terms of economic forecasting with a six to eight month lead time, um, actually since I got in the business, is extremely weak. We're hearing bad, bad anecdotes from retail. And then of course you have the, you've already mentioned it, the, the banking problem. We always knew, um, given what I've already described, there were gonna be bodies out there. When you have free money, um, people do stupid things. When you have free money for 11 years, people do really stupid things. So there's stuff under the hood, it's starting to emerge. Obviously the regional banks, recently we had Bed Bath & Beyond, but I would assume there's a lot more bodies coming. The regional banks, the median regional bank has 43% of their um, loans in commercial real estate, about 40% of that is office. As you know, we've had this huge change in lifestyle um, due to COVID. Number one, the great resignation, but number two, people are going to the office. So we have actually a higher vacancy rate than we had in 2008. So I put all that together and I look also at the inverted yield curve. The timing has always said sort of third to probably fourth quarter of this year to first quarter of 24. But the recent anecdotes, the banking problems, I wouldn't be surprised if the bean counters a year from now as they tend to do backward looking that the thing started sometime in the second quarter. I don't know that, but I do this for a living, so I gotta have a forecast. Well, thank you for that. And given all the uncertainties and the difficulty of having a conviction, what does a hard landing look like? And where are the greatest risks? And how do you best mitigate those risks? Yeah. Will the outcome be inflationary or deflationary, a combination of the two? But we spoke about this a year ago. I argued that 18 trillion in sovereign credit with a negative yield and interest rates at 5,000 years low, 5,000 year lows was, was a real deflationary extreme. On the other hand, for years you've argued that the surest way to create deflation is to build an asset bubble and then burst it. And we're in the fourth great super bubble of the last 100 years. So how does this end? And what are the implications of another round of massive monetary stimulus? Well, the easy answer to your question and the most truthful one is I don't know, um, but I'll give it a shot. First of all, when I talk about a hard landing, I'm talking about something, albeit starting from near record margins, that probably encompasses a, say a 20 to 20% 20 plus with an emphasis on the plus decline in corporate profits. Um, unemployment probably going up from the 3.4 rate now to something above five. Um, probably a number of increases in bankruptcies, which as you know, Carol, are astonishingly low given that we've been in one of the most disruptive economic periods since the 1880s and 
until recently, there have been basically no bankruptcies and they're nowhere near where they were in 2008. Um, in terms of inflation or deflation, wow, that is really hard. Um, two years ago, I was pretty confident inflation was going to go up and go up materially. Now, it's funny, uh, we had a staff meeting last week, and I said I could make a case in three years for inflation being an eight, or I could make a case for deflation. That's kind of a that's kind of a wide range in terms of giving an answer. But I would say um, the hardest thing looking at all this is sort of looking at the money supply. So Ed Hyman, who I have unbelievable respect for, has pointed out that we have the most rapid shrinkage in the money supply we've ever had. But it's not that simple because the money supply grew in the high 30s, around 40% a few years ago. So if you look at the stock of money, it's still extremely high. So if you make this big mountain and you just come down a little like this, um, yes, the year-to-year over change in the money supply is like minus 6%, but there's still a lot of liquidity out there. I think Jamie Dimon said a year and a half ago there was like $2.5 in excess deposits uh, and savings. Uh, we've worked probably a trillion, a trillion and a half of that off, but there's still a stock out there. So trying to time this is difficult, but putting it all together, given anecdotes, given the fact that we are on our way with long and variable lags, we're already a year into it. I would guess inflation will probably come down into the three, three and a half percent range in the next six to nine months. And that's when it gets really hard because then you're asking me to predict what the Fed will do. And I just told you, I was astonished at what the Fed response was in 2021 and even in early 2022. And in case no one knows, next year is an election year. If they act like Arthur Burns, when it goes down to three or three and a half percent, and you haven't had enough time where inflation is down, and they don't, and they haven't slayed the dragon. That's where I could see a few years out, sort of an inflationary, probably with an emphasis on the stag part, a stagflationary environment. Um, or I am haunted by the previous things I've said and the fact that we've had this massive asset bubble. If you burst it, um, there's a possibility that they can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. If there's one thing about the consensus that I'd say I'm on the other side of, and I want to be careful with my words here, um, it's this constant repeating that this looks like nothing like 2008 or 2007. First of all, those saying it, I don't remember them predicting in 2007 what was ahead of them. And I don't remember people saying the banking system was that week going in. Um, I, I am not predicting something worse than 2008. So I don't wanna see headlines tomorrow that I said something worse than 2008 is coming. But I think it's naive to not be open-minded 
to some sort of possibility of that effect. The, the banks have got themselves in a balance sheet problem um, before the loan losses have started because of um, obviously the mismatch of liabilities and assets with treasuries on their balance sheet. They basically have stuff yielding two, two and a half percent that their cost of funds is 5% on. So before we even get into an economic contraction, many of the banks already have impaired balance sheets. If you pile on um, losses in commercial real estate, credit card losses, the stuff that normally happens in a recession, and you take the fact that we have had this big asset bubble going into it, and you take the fact that we just had the most rapid increase in interest rates from the bottom in, in history, I think it's just naive not be open-minded to something really, really bad happening. Again, it is not my forecast, but as a risk manager, it has to be part of my matrix and my equation in thinking about it. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's go down that train of thought. In a hard landing, what asset classes would perform best? And of course, during the, uh, the time of Nifty 50 in the early 70s, as the uh, that bubble burst in 72, 74, the so-called basic industry stocks were flat, didn't perform at all. And once the Fed started cutting, cutting in early 75, they, uh, they absolutely soared. Uh, likewise, during the early 2000s, as the internet bubble burst, uh, commodities and commodity equities, especially oil, held up well, and of course, were the leaders in the ensuing decades. So the natural in inclination is to reduce exposure to commodities if a hard landing were coming. But history shows that that doesn't always work. So as you're doing your thinking board, how do you evaluate how much exposure to have in these sectors and what events or market action would make you want to take very large position. Well, you notice the period you went right to was the period I just also mentioned, which was the Arthur Burns reign. And with the OPEC increase in 1973, and I think oil went up 400%, and then Burns taking uh, his foot off the brakes too early, obviously chemicals, oil, stuff like that, at it's sort of a wonderful period. I don't think this is all that different. Again, it's going to depend a lot on government and policymakers' response if we get a hard landing. But one would think coming out of it, um, there are going to be some great commodities. Copper is in the tightest position, well, frankly, I've ever even studied. I'm actually afraid to have a meaningful position in it at this point as we approach the hard landing, um, only because I'm not an idiot and I know what what, what happened to the cyclical factors uh, as a hard landing starts. But coming out of it, um, given the move toward EVs, um, given the usefulness of it in infrastructure spending, which I think a lot of government policies will try and encourage on their way out. Um, it's hard to believe copper won't be a huge beneficiary. The, the question is, um, when, is, when am I supposed to buy it and how big is the exposure? 
And a lot of how big I would get a position like that, again, will be policymakers' response if we even get a hard landing. This isn't a foregone conclusion. As I said earlier, this is not an easy forecast place to uh, forecast. Uh, the other interesting place um, is the U.S. housing industry because housing um, has obviously gone down dramatically um, given the 500 basis point increase in interest rates. But we, unlike 07, 08, we actually have a structural shortage in single-family single homes going into this. So if things got bad enough, I could actually see housing, which is about the last thing you would you would think of intuitively, um, could be a big beneficiary on the way out. And then um, I would say there's always growth. And this is really hard to figure out which names, but biotech has been a big underperformer in the last three to five years. And there are tremendous things going on in cancer and other areas. Um, there was an article, um, I guess it was in The Economist uh, last weekend about um, new viral drugs using viruses to conquer bacteria. So that would be a fruitful area. And then of course, there's AI. Um, I would hope that I haven't been one to buy into fads historically. I, I played some Bitcoin at the bottom, but never really got too, too worked up about blockchain. Um, I did, I did buy the top in, uh, 2000, um, in an emotional moment in, in the tech bubble after having sold it. But, um, I actually think, um, the AI thing is very, very real, real and could be every bit as impactful as the internet, literally, um, going forward and, it could be a beautiful opportunity in a hard landing, just like 0102 were a beautiful opportunity when the tech bubble burst going forward and, um, for companies who would benefit from the internet. Um, AI could be there. It's funny, um, my firm has only been able to participate in AI by owning NVIDIA and Microsoft. And it's not even clear to me, and this is kind of, this is kind of out there, Carol, but it's not even clear to me if we had a really bad recession that NVIDIA would even go down. Um, it's kind of a stupid statement um, given, given the multiple on it, but if they bought staples historically in recessions, why wouldn't they grow a company that's obvious, buy a company that's obviously gonna grow very rapidly? So those are just some interesting thoughts. I mean, we own, uh, we own gold and silver right now. Um, they historically have not done well in hard landings, but given the, the, it looks to me like the monetary and the fiscal authorities are kind of at the end of their rope. And given the fact that other countries have decided, particularly autocracies, not to hold their reserves in dollars, um, I'm betting for the time being uh, against the history of the performance of gold and hard landings, um, could be wrong. And then don't go out and buy gold. I could change my mind in a week or two folks, but, um, 
those are just some thoughts to a, to a very hard question. I would say the most important answer I give that is keep an open mind and see how the authorities react to this over the six to nine months because they could give you very different outcomes. But be open-minded to your question. Given the, the boom bust that the Fed has created for decades, the free money of the last decade, the, the uh, excesses of the post-COVID period, and now the, the risk of a hard landing. If one were to occur, do you think the independence of the Fed is in jeopardy? And would it be a fatal blow to the utility case for central banks? You ask really hard questions, Carol. Uh, um, I think the Fed's independence will survive. Uh, I will say it, it'll be the most risk of that independence um, that I will have seen in 50 years. So it's not a slam dunk. I think there's a five to 10% chance if the hard lending got really bad and people look back at the record of the Fed the last five or 10 years, you already hear people screaming about 500 basis points and the Fed has gone too far and what are they doing? Um, and this is with unemployment at 3.4%. 2024 an election year, um, if things get really bad and they look at the actual record, the guy blew 40 years of credibility in terms of a disinflationary mindset. And then like a reformed smoker, maybe if we have a hard landing, people will say he overadjusted and was wrong again. It's gonna come under attack. I hope and believe their independence will survive, but it's not an unreasonable question. It certainly isn't. Moving on to what the government will do uh, in a recession in terms of, of stimulus. Is it possible that we've seen literally the end of the credit cycle and that there are no more balance sheets left to inflate? It's possible, but these guys never cease to amaze me. Um, <laughs> and I don't think they'll go down without a fight. We have, we come into this with fiscal challenges completely unlike any time we've ever been in this situation before. I remember um, in 79 and 80, when Reagan rode in on his white horse, you, you know, the market was eight times earnings, um, prices were depressed and balance sheets particularly the governments were nowhere near in the situation they're in now. So there's there's not the room to move in, on the monetary or the fiscal front in a reasonable manner that there's been going into other cycles. We basically wasted all our bullets amazingly in the last few years in, in, an, in an economic expansion. Um, but you know, the government can always print money and try. Look at, look at what they did in Japan. 
I mean, they tried everything and it didn't work. Uh, the question is, are we there? The answer is, I hope not. Going back to uh, Edward Chancellor, and you were kind enough to, uh, with Scott Besson, interview him uh, in my brain trust in January. And you asked the question, uh, is our current society so addicted to government and central bank financing that it's impossible to work our way, way out of this? And you asked um, Edward whether he thought it was, whether he past the point of no return. And he said he thought we have. What do you think? I would never just categorically say we passed the point of no return. But, you know, I was worried about our fiscal situation, so worried about it that 12 years ago, I went out and tried to convince young people on a college tour of what lay ahead of us and was worried about the 2025 to 2035 period because of the demographics of the situation and what might happen with interest expense. Um, frankly, um, the period since then has been worse than I ever imagined. So, um, I don't want to go quite so far as Edward went, but let me just say, I'm concerned. I don't know. I'm concerned. I, it is amazing how America has this culture that always seems to respond and come back and maybe with a hard landing and a flush out and just a terrible recession that brings back the values and the culture we've always had. We come out of this on the other side, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a scary cocktail that we're being presented with. Very, very. So looking at how you navigate these tricky markets, and you've been saying for a year that, that being short is very dangerous because of these brutal bear market rallies. But if you're a standard long short hedge fund, how do you position yourself? So Carol, I like, um, I like, concentrated bets. I like fat pitches and then the swing big. And I also like when you don't see a fat pitch, stand there and let the pitches go by. Um, two years ago, two years at 15 basis points with the money growing at 40%, money supply growing at 40%, that was a fat pitch. Um, your risk reward was maybe if you're dead wrong, the two year yield goes from 15 basis points to 10 basis points. I thought at the time, if I was right, they would go to 200. I have to admit, I didn't think they were gonna to go to 500 in a year. I didn't think the Fed had it in them. Um, I don't see a pitch like that out there right now. I was also very negative on the stock market. Um, and I'm not positive on the stock market, but we've come a long way. I'm afraid of the authorities. Um, and if I like the stock market, uh, um, you know, I would be exposed and, and I'm not exposed. So, so my advice would be to a long short hedge fund, 
keep your gross low, be open-minded. And if we get a hard landing, um, there are gonna be unbelievable opportunities. And I don't wanna miss those opportunities by blowing my money now and having some 20 or 30% loss where my head is all screwed up when those opportunities present themselves. So I'm happy um, with, with, a, with a portfolio right now that is not net short or not net long and only about 60% gross because funny things happen when you need chaos. You know, the, the playbook I've always used if I expected a, a bad economic outcome is to own treasuries. Well, with, with the 10 year yielding 350 or wherever it is today, um, and Fed funds at five, that's not exactly a fat pitch. What if you're wrong? Um, and what if, what if the Fed panics and you get an inflationary outcome? So that asset class is sort of off the table. Um, we can talk about the dollar in a few minutes. I don't have some massive short dollar position. I may have been a little misinterpreted uh, in an interview I did a week ago, but I but it is a, a position that will move the needle at my firm. Uh, I don't know how long I'm going to stick with it, but that that is something we're doing. But for for long short guys out there. I would say you're going to have unbelievable opportunities in the next couple of years. There's a lot of dispersion um, within industries, and just make just make sure to preserve your capital until they present themselves. And I wouldn't go crazy on the short side for that reason either. Well said. So let's come back to a point you raised earlier and go into more detail on it, and that's the U.S. fiscal situation. So. The first quarter of this year, we saw the third largest deficit in, in history, uh, exceeded only by the COVID quarter and, and uh, GFC. And what happens in a recession or hard landing to the deficit? And the U.S. didn't, didn't extend maturities when it had the chance. And now uh, interest on the federal debt is running at a $600 billion annual rate. Even during 2018, when unemployment hit a 50-year low, the deficit never even fell below 5%. And then in the post-COVID boom, which you referred to as being something we've never seen before, the U.S. government ran a deficit of over a trillion. And never in history has a boom economy produced a worse fiscal result. There's a lot of talk about the death ceiling. But your concern for years has been the inextricability of this entitlement spending. And by some estimates, the present value of unfunded government liabilities is as high as 200 trillion. And one CBO study shows that entitlements plus net interest will cost 100% of taxes in 2040. So roll out your thinking on this, which you've been talking about for a long time. Well, first of all, the, the debt ceiling debate is, is really depressing. Um, look, I hope um, we don't have a technical default. I think it would be stupid. I think it would be a market event. I think it would be a problem. But it's just amazing all the catastrophic forecasts 
from government officials and others and the focus on the on the debt ceiling. Um, I gave a speech at USC last week and I said, all this talk about the debt ceiling is like sitting on the Santa Monica Pier and you've got a 30-foot wave coming in and you're worried about the Santa Monica Pier being damaged. Um, but you know, 10 miles out is a 200-foot tsunami. Um, and that's kind of the situation here. And to some extent, it's, it's discouraging that the Republicans have given the Biden administration the debt ceiling to even talk about because it enables them to talk about irresponsibility. And the real problem is not the debt ceiling is a market event. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be pleasant. It would be stupid. But the other thing is an existential threat to American capitalism. You just mentioned in 2040. That's not that far away, folks. I mean, think back 17 years. 2006 doesn't seem that long ago. That's that's 2040, and in 2040, um, entitlements plus interest expense using CBO estimates, which I think are ridiculously low on the interest rates if we're in that situation, um, are greater than, that's when they cross become greater than taxes. In 2052, just 30 years using their projections, it's a taxes, it's 117% of taxes and we have an 11% deficit, assuming a 4% interest rate. Well, if you have, if you have that situation, interest rates aren't gonna be four. So the most annoying thing is probably the Republicans caving in, which they probably needed to, if they want to keep their jobs on the entitlements. Look, Jesse James, why do you rob the banks? Well, that's where the money is. There's no money except entitlements. That's where it is. We are absolutely going to cut entitlements in this country. It is a lie and it is a fantasy to say we don't have to cut entitlements. The problem is we're either gonna cut them now or we're gonna cut them later. But if we cut them later, because we will have waited the interest expense, which is already set under CBO to go from eight to 27% of GDP, will go much, much higher. Um, so it's a choice. And I don't think it's a hard one because they say how bad it would be for current seniors if we were to do something on entitlement, well, what about future seniors? Why should current seniors get a dollar or 100% of the loaf and future seniors get zero? It makes no sense to me. And until we deal with this, it's gonna squeeze out everything else. It's gonna squeeze out government investment. It's gonna squeeze out private investment uh, and it's gonna have terrible economic consequences. And it's just, extremely disheartening to watch. Well, Washington, Macron trying to resolve it and the pain he's going through is harbinger of how. Well, that's, that, Macron is, that's quite interesting. And I learned something when I was doing the, uh, preparing the speech for USC, because I knew we were in bad shape. The economists have something they call the fiscal gap that's the amount you would have to raise taxes today to maintain the generosity that you've promised futures, 
future seniors. Um, and in the United States, that's 7.7% of GDP. What does that mean? That means if you wanted to fix such a situation today without touching entitlements, you'd have to raise taxes 40% tomorrow morning and keep them there forever, or cut spending tomorrow morning by 35% and keep them there forever. Although of course it's worse than that um, because that would cause the economy to go down and actually tax revenues go down, blah, blah, blah. What was astonishing to me is our fiscal gap is 7.7%. France, France, the poster child for social welfare and all that stuff, their fiscal gap is 2.4%. So it's less than a third of ours and they're addressing the problem. It's just, it's frankly amazing. It really is, lack of leadership. So this obviously leads us to ask about the dollar, which you referred to. And the dollar could certainly fall 25% to, to reach equilibrium. But there are other factors that could make it worse. After the freezing of Russian foreign exchange reserves, there's been steady liquidation of foreign central bank holdings. Even France has reduced its treasury by 25% since March of last year. The weaponization of the US dollar is having dramatic consequences. And then you have the possibility that China could continue to grow while the US is in a hard landing. And this, this brings me to one of your favorite themes and that's the curse of the reserve currency. So please give me your, your outlook for the dollar given everything we're talking about and explain what you mean by the curse of the reserve currency. Well, I think most of the audience has heard of the resource course. If you have um, oil or some great mineral under the ground, the population doesn't have to work very hard and there's not a lot of innovation um, going on. So the economy never really innovates and grows dramatically and does the right thing. The, the best um, probably way to explain the resource curse is to take the opposite, and that's Israel. They have no resources. <laughs> They've dramatically outperformed the rest of the Middle East who has all the resources. Um, the reserve currency is an unbelievable privilege. And unfortunately, that privilege, while you have it, allows you, if you choose to do so, to run very myopic policies that don't address the long term and allows you to behave in a way because markets don't check you because you're being funded by outside sources. Um, everything we just described, um, the fiscal recklessness, the monetary recklessness, all that no other country could have pulled that off. And it's fun and it's great while it lasts, but it enables you to keep digging and digging and digging into a deeper hole until um, the consequences come to bear. And ironically, it probably, to some extent, you do it enough, you lose the privilege and then you only have the consequences. That's why I call it the curse of the reserve currency. 
when Britain um, tried to do fiscal stimulus with, with mistrust, um, the market immediately shut them down and they immediately went to a more responsible form of government. We have no check on us. While all this craziness we just talked about went on in 21 and 22, the dollar actually went up. Any other place, the market would have rejected it and we would have gotten our house in order immediately. When you're the reserve currency, you can continue digging your own grave until finally you're dead and you're under the soil. One of the things that disturbed me the last decade was what I would call the trying to solve the problem of debt with more debt, because that was done in the 20s, very unsuccessful. And with free money, there was a massive misallocation of resources. And I was very worried when I saw the pricing of, of, of borrowing for risky borrowers at ridiculously low rates that did not reflect risk. And adding, going back to your comment about no bankruptcies, um, sooner or later, this, this has to be resolved. And how do you think it is going to be resolved? Will the government end up supporting everything? Is there a limit? You know, will there be winners and losers? Will some survive and some won't? How do you think that, that ends? I don't know. That is the existential question of our time. Um, if we get in a hard landing, are we finally going to allow creative destruction and capitalism to do its thing with horrible near-term, when I say near-term, one to three-year consequences? Um, I think if we do, we'll have a chance. People will go back to work, values will come back, even Gen Z will think maybe they're supposed to work. Um, maybe we can clean all this out. And what's made America great for 200 years could possibly revive. On the other hand, we can go the route we've been going for the last 20 or 30 years, which is try more monetary stimulus, more debt, sort of what Japan has done, and end up in a permanent malaise. We're not nearly, we don't have the firepower we had back then, but I will never forget because it was right after I started Duquesne, 1982. Volcker intentionally threw us into a recession. He raised rates to 20%. We had a horrible recession um, in 82, big increase in unemployment. But you know what? Even politically, Reagan won 49 states in 1984. We got 20 to 30 years of prosperity out of us. We took the pain and we cleaned up our act. I'd never bet and say America is finished. And I would like to try that. I hope they try that experiment again, which is not manipulate things. But, you know, given given our political history, given the divisiveness, given where we are, it's it's hard to imagine any politician having the guts guts to do that going forward. And, and, and to your earlier question, if a Federal Reserve chairman tries it, 
um, particularly given the record of the last four or five years, their independence could be threatened. So it's, um, we're at a precarious moment. I, what came to mind as you were talking is Andrew Mellon's famous statement from the early 30s, liquidate labor, liquidate capital, purge the rot from the system. And of course he was vilified for that, the way things unfolded. And do we have the courage to follow through? He was vilified and God, a depression would be a horrible price to pay. Um, but again, and I don't want a depression and I hope we don't do policies that throw you in on depression, but it is funny to look back. America kind of did okay after the 30s ended. Um, and so there, there are gonna be tough choices ahead and I think we all have to be open-minded and watch and, and see how they go. I, we don't even know who the president's gonna be in 2024. Hopefully it's not gonna be Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Uh, you suggested that there's a good chance that the coming decade could be a, a lost decade for, for equity markets. And again, you know, we're dealing in, in scenarios and we're dealing in possibilities, but you've obviously thought this through. In such a situation, how can we protect our wealth? Yeah. Just because I said I expected the market to be flat, same place it was in 10 years, doesn't mean it'll be a lost decade for investors. You could have made a lot of money um, in the 68 to 82 period, being long the stock market and being long the right stocks at the right time. We had huge bull market rallies from 70 to 72. As you mentioned earlier, you could have made a fortune in oil, chemical, those kind of stocks early on. Then we had another huge rally, obviously from 75 um, up to the 77 period. So even if we were flat, for the next 10 years, there'll be opportunities. I have no doubt, unfortunately, I'm not smart enough to identify them, but I have no doubt there will be applications made on top of the model builders in AI where you'll have $100 billion companies emerge. And who knows, with, with all the dark talk we've had, which is more than I think either of us would have liked to last 40 or 45 minutes, um, AI, could be as impactful productivity wise as the PC was for all the technology we've had so much of it has gone into social networks and other things that have not enhanced productivity. Um, there, there are some hopes there, but when I look at market at 20 times earnings, when I look at margins as high as they are, when I look at the fiscal challenges, I just pointed out and the squeezing of private investment, um, I was asked a question and I answered it. It's 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 hard for me to envision stocks being higher in 10 years. And I think it was in response. So I kept watching the TV and everybody was embarrassed and said, but I'm bullish for the long term. I just don't want people to go and buy and hold and and think they're gonna make nine percent a year the next 10 years. I've been wrong before they might, but that's not that's not my expectation. 
You told me when we spoke a, a week or so ago that um, MBS is the most popular leader in the Middle East and that people actually love him. I have to confess that came as a surprise to me. And what do you think the significance of this is for the Middle East and geopolitics in general? Well, I just think our administration has made a terrible mistake isolating this guy. Um, he's 37 years old. He's wildly popular, not just in Saudi Arabia, but in the Middle East. He's a, he's a dynamic, dynamic leader. And it appears to me, and this is more guess analysis, he's trying to make himself a hegemony in, in the Middle East. Um, I noticed he brought the president of Egypt in, met him at the airport, done a deal with Iran. He's sort of building this autocratic block within the Middle East. And I think he's probably gonna succeed. Um, so I just think we've made a huge mistake. Frankly, I think his um, discouragement is not so much toward the US as the Biden administration. And if we get the right leader, I think this can be repaired, underlining think, um, as opposed to no, it can be repaired. So depending on who the president is in 24, I think we can get this back, but I think it's imperative we get this back. This guy's gonna be in power for 40 or 50 years. Obviously we have an energy transition, no matter what you think about climate, there's a bridge of at least 10 to 15 years. and we don't want him to be in bed with China and not in bed with us. I just think it's a disaster given the whole geopolitical outlook looking forward. Well, let's, uh, let's uh, move on to happier subjects and some personal questions to finish up here. Uh, you and your wife, Fiona, have raised three extraordinary daughters despite enormous family wealth. And, and how did you manage it? And what's the advice you have for others? Because they're not entitled. And how do you best transfer wealth to the next generation without generating entitlement and the loss of the drive to succeed? I managed it with ridiculous luck. Um, I married someone who I was in love with and I knew she was very intelligent and had great values, but I had no idea what a great mother she would be. And um, I've always told young people in terms of parenting, forget quality time, it's quantity time. All time with your children is quality time. There's no such thing just like you can just do quality. It's, it's funny because my wife and I had a very different view um, in terms of how to, how to handle our wealth and the kids. Um, she, she didn't say no a whole lot and I thought she was crazy, but in terms of the household, she was the boss. And you're right, we've ended up with three very happy, overachieving, grounded children. I think she gave up her job um, and made her job being that raising the children at home and put such effort into it and spent so much time with them. I tried to spend the time with them. I could. And I think rather than preaching to them, they just observed 
our behavior and our values, and they ended up being great kids. But I'd say I had about 3% to do with it, and Fiona had 97% to do with it. So there was a lot of luck involved. But if you're only as happy as your least happy child, uh, I'm very, very lucky. Surely you are. Well, people in our business tend to be very focused and driven, but I wouldn't say many of them are happy. But you're a happy man. You've got this balanced life. You're one of the great philanthropists in America. You have a beautiful, evolved spiritual wife who you love. These three lovely daughters, all successful. And you have this balance, and yet you achieve this phenomenal performance, and you're a happy man. How do you do it? I don't know, Carol. I've just been very fortunate. I've, I've lived the American dream. Um, my mother-in-law says I'm idiot. Savan, I agree with her. I don't know why. I just happen to be good at compounding money. I love the business. I love the intellectual stimulation of knowing every event in the world changes some security price somewhere and trying to figure out the puzzle. So if you work 60 or 70 hours a week and you love your job, there's 70 hours right there. Um, we don't do, we're somewhat antisocial, so we don't spend a lot of time doing that stuff, which leaves time uh, to, to be with our family and do do leisure, not not associated with going out to dinners and society events and stuff like that. Yeah, the philanthropy um, is just a source of great joy, and I consider it a privilege that we have the money to do it. I don't think it's something we should be thanked for. I I like to say I like to thank the grantees because they're giving us the joy of funding them, and they're the do-gooders out there changing the world. So. Look, given the life I've lived and living the American dream, if I wasn't happy, I that would be bizarre to me. So I've just had an extremely lucky life. Well, it's wonderful to hear, Stan. You certainly deserve it. And the last question is your philanthropy. Obviously, you have your fingers in many different pies, many different things are going on. What are you most excited about and what's most interesting? in the space? Well, as you know, there, there's a few things, but as you know, um, I had the great fortune of meeting Jeff Canada back in the early 90s, and he basically was the father of, I would say, the, the place matters thing that Raj Chetty um, subsequently proved with statistics, but that if you can change your neighborhood, you can clear out some of these pockets in America where kids don't have a shot at the American dream. Um, because of the success of the Harlem Children's Zone, and because we have a great leader there now, a young leader, Jeff has actually come back to work after retiring and he's helping roll this out nationally. So through Blue Meridian Partners, um, and I would say because George Floyd combined with COVID kind of shined a light on, on the plight of disadvantaged neighborhoods. There's been just tremendous new interest from new funders in, in the place matter space, place-based models. So that's something uh, I'm tremendously excited about, sort of taking the Harlem Children's Own model, finding leaders, 
in other challenged cities and changing them. So economic mobility. The other one um, is just cancer. I've been on the board of Sloan Kettering, Memorial Sloan Kettering for I think 27 or 28 years. The first 10 or 15 years, we were poisoning people with chemotherapy and hoping it would kill the cancer before it killed them. Then about 14 years ago, they sort of figured it out. Um, mutations, personalized medicine, there just wasn't one lung cancer. There were hundreds of them. Uh, immunotherapy, basically they cracked the code and the cancer therapies are going like this. If, if you're on an S curve, we're sighted we're, we're right, right here. Um, the Lung Cancer Center we funded there in 2014, the, the outcomes of survivals over five years were 14%, they're now 58. And that's sort of just what's going on throughout cancer. So that's really, really an exciting area to see. An area that um, we're hoping for the same kind of results, but it hasn't happened yet is, it, is in the neuroscience and neurology place. There we funded a lot of basic, um, basic research and we don't have the results of the cancer. I'm hoping we're 10 or 15 years behind it, but I do think the brain will sort of be the last frontier and you only get success through failures and we're finding out over and over again what doesn't work, but I'm pretty sure um, they'll figure it out. And then the, uh, the last thing is the, is the environment. Uh, that, that's a big bucket for us. And um, there's a lot of money going into uh, climate uh, and other things. I would, I would just say there, I've been very disappointed that it's sort of a top-down command and control model and why we're not doing a carbon tax and forgetting all this government intervention and just letting the market handle it has been a big disappointment. But those are th our three big buckets are uh, our economic mobility, which obviously really is affected by education, um, two, health, and then three, the environment. That's very inspirational and you continue to do so many good things for so many people. We're very grateful to have you healthy and happy and continue your good work. Well, I think that wraps it up for today. And thank you so much for- Carol, it's always great to see you. I, I love talking to you, but your questions are a little too hard, but uh, <laughs> it makes it more fun in some ways. That's right, that's right. Thanks for, thank you. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. You too.